I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Just before we get this next history hack out and going, just a quick reminder that there are lots of ways you can support the pod. Remember, just by liking, subscribing and sharing it with your friends, that is invaluable as it gets the word out and our witterings can go far and wide. But if you're able to support us financially, that would be incredible because it helps us keep doing what we're doing. In the description to this episode, there are links to Patreon where you can support the podcast regularly and Ko-Fi where you can tip us for an episode that you like. But we've also got some merch. So if you head to shop.historyhackpod.com, You'll be able to see some incredible bits of merchandise featuring designs that Steve Smith does for every episode. We've got some totes on there, some mugs, and we've got more stuff coming all the time. So please do check that out. And if you are able to support us financially, thank you so much. But even if it's just liking, sharing, and telling everyone we're incredible, that helps us too. So without further ado... Hello and welcome to History Hack. I'm afraid you've just got me today, but thankfully we have a guest as well. So that means you should keep listening because it's going to be a fascinating discussion because we're off to Italy and our guide this evening or this morning or lunchtime, if you're listening to this at lunchtime, is Samantha Morris, who is an archaeologist by trade. But while she was working on her dissertation about the English Civil War, she found herself being dragged to the Italian Renaissance which is something we can all understand, really. And as she says herself, it has taken over her life. And we're going to be looking at one very interesting character this evening who most will have heard of, well, if not heard of him by name, will have heard about the event which he's most known for. But we'll get to that in a minute. Samantha, thank you for joining us on History Hack. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Hope you're good, too. Very well, yes. It's yeah. I think it could be a bit warmer in my house, but other than that, it's November. <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> We're not allowed to have heat on now; it's too expensive. So let's speaking. Ah, see, there you go. Segue. As we're going to be speaking about things getting warmed up later. <laughs> That's staying in the edit. So, where are you going to be taking us this evening? Because who are we going to be chatting about? So we're going to be looking at Girolamo Savonarola who was a friar, obviously in the Italian Renaissance, and he took on and lost the Borgia Pope, Alexander VI, and it all ended up very messy. So it's quite a dark story, especially towards the end, but very interesting. Mm. So have you seen the TV series, The Borgia Pope with Jeremy Irons? So. Oh, don't even get inspired. <laughs> So Savonarola is, he's an interesting character. He's very divisive, but you've got a bit of a soft spot for him. So what drew drew you to him or vice versa? Oh, I, I do. I first came across him properly, even though I had read about him sort of in passing, you know, when for my sins, I was watching the Borgias. 
I can't believe I've just admitted that. But I was completely struck by this hook-nosed, black-cowled figure who took on the Pope and lost. So I hunted down more information about him and I found a pious, God-fearing man who believed in reform so wholeheartedly that he was willing to do practically anything to, to get it. He started out as an underdog, really, with lofty ideas and took on some of the biggest names in the Christian world. And I think that's what drew me to him in the first place. He took on the Catholic Church. And though he lost, he earned his place in, in history. Very much so. But let's go back to the beginning. So he, he was born in 1452 in Ferrara. Is that right? So what do we think his early years were like? Not a lot is actually known about his early life, um, believe it or not. I mean, he was born in a little house, which you can still walk past in Ferrara. I've walked past it. I wanted to go in, but we couldn't because someone was living there. Boo. I was not happy. And when he was born, Ferrara had already become a centre of, you know, Renaissance learning, art and culture. Today, the street where he was born is actually known as the Via Savonarola. It was named that in the 19th century, I think it was. But before that, it was known as the Via Belvedere because it had links to the castle in the centre of the city. And there are actually some really interesting areas along that road. It was one of the main thoroughfares in the city, actually, as well. So as you walk along, you can see the site where Ercole Strozzi was murdered. He was an alleged lover of Lucrezia Borgia. And you also have the Monastery of Corpus Domini, which is the burial place of the ruling Este family of Ferrara and also Lucrezia Borgia, who was an Este by marriage. But obviously, number 19... Where he was born is most of interest to us. And there's a cute little plaque above the door saying, oh, look, Savonarola was born here. Yay. In that many words. So, yeah, like I said, there's not a a lot known of his early life, but we do know he was really close to his grandfather, Michele Savonarola, who was a deeply religious man. Huge interest in the humanist teachings that were sweeping Europe at the time. He was also a courtier and a physician in the Este courts. As we know, the, the Este ruled Ferrara. Under his grandfather's tutelage, the young man would have learned a number of languages, including Latin, Greek, and he would have attended lectures at the University of Ferrara, where his grandfather actually taught, and come into contact with the classical authors, so, you know, Ovid, things like that. It was through his granddad, actually, that he got his first taste of court life. This is, I like this little story because it it really does, you know, it builds him up for later. So he accompanied his granddad on his medical duties at the palace. But the moment Savonarola stepped foot into the glittering world of the ducal court, he was shocked by what he saw. Uh, He was immediately uncomfortable, surrounded by such vice um, and was so disgusted that he never stepped foot in those buildings again. Wow. Yeah. So that, you know, set him up for life, basically that one moment, you know, he and he hated that sort of thing going forward, which just goes to show learning from an early age. (laughs) Yes. Set you out on the path you mean to continue. Exactly, yeah. When his granddad died in 1468, Savonarola's father convinced him to study for his Master of Arts in Medicine. But that was entirely selfish. His father, Niccolo, simply wanted his son to earn a good enough wage to pay off his massive debts, which is, yeah, 
not nice. <laughs> so he's got a choice of becoming a doctor, but he takes a bit of a right turn and becomes a Dominican. Just so we know this, because my Catholic orders of priests are a little bit fuzzy. Which ones were the Dominicans? Ones in the black robes. The ones in the black robes. Black robes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so not the Jesuits that think around corners and just basically argue about things further. These guys are no. very... Very, very pious, very simple living, or they should have been at any rate. But we'll come to that a little bit later mm. with Savonarola's reforms that he started doing. Because he wasn't wonderfully happy to start with in the order. But again, we'll come to that in a bit. So do, do we do we know why he, he chose the Dominicans or did they choose him? Well, there's a few reasons why he decided to become uh, a Dominican monk. To start with, he seemed happy, you know, to follow in his grandfather's footsteps and to continue follow the humanist teachings. He even started to write poetry and played the lute. And then he fell in love. Her name was Lardomia and she was an illegitimate daughter of the distinguished Strozzi family, who we mentioned just before with Ercole, who was murdered later on. But when Savonarola made his intentions clear and asked for her hand in marriage, she scoffed and turned around to him and said that no Strozzi would ever stoop so low as to marry a Savonarola. Wow. He spat back that no Savonarola would stoop as low as to marry a bastard. So, so yeah. Then later on, his Savonarola's brother stated that that was the moment Savonarola decided to shun the world and all its vanities. Dejected and depressed, the young man developed a hatred of corruption within the church and how those in power squandered their wealth. He even wrote poems calling Rome the whore of Babylon. It was in 1474 that he decided to actually leave home and enter the church in an effort to overcome at least some of its corruption. He was visiting Faenza for May Day. And inside the church of San Agostino, he heard a friar telling him to go forth out of thy country and form thy kindred and out of thy father's house and come into the land that I shall show thee. And that was it. Decision made right there and then. Um, It took him a year to finally pluck up the courage to leave. But he finally did so during the St. George's Day celebrations in Ferrara on the 23rd of April, 1475. He just upped and left his family and walked 30 miles to Bologna, where he entered the Dominican order. I love Bologna. It's one place I've never been. Oh, go. Well, we've been to the the train station, but that doesn't really count. (laughs) (laughs) You should. And if anyone else is listening, go, because it's fantastic. It's beautiful. I have heard it's beautiful. Yeah. All the towers. Yeah. We, we digress. So <laughs> we're in Bologna. I'm happy. His beginnings as a preacher are rather humble. So it, it's, mm-hmm. I, I, I would suppose it was a, a pretty standard beginning within, within a, a, a priestly order. He's not going to sort of burst onto the scene. He's just going to have to do the menial stuff. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So it was exceptionally humble. And even in those very early days, he took issue with how richly his fellow brothers were living, which we we mentioned very briefly earlier. And during these early days, he had some misgivings about life in the order, which I, I suppose is natural. He wanted a simple life serving God and didn't particularly cherish the idea of continuing to grow and learn as those who had come before him had done. And the Dominican order were known for you know, it's great, great learning after all. So at this point, he didn't really see the order as, as 
providing the simple life of self-denial and hard work that he really, really wanted. But it didn't take long for him to settle into life at the friary. He was happy doing the menial stuff, you know, the really rubbish jobs. (laughs) And he completed his novitiate a year later and took his vows. And then he decided, actually, I'm going to continue on with my learning and started to learn preaching which is what the Dominicans did. They, they traveled around and preached. Very interesting way of doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that, that, is, that, is, that is a different podcast because we shall, we shall stick to this one. Because the next question I have here mentions probably one of the most famous names in history. So where did the Medici come into our story? Okay. So they've been in power in the city of Florence for a number of years at this point. Um, They're originally from the Mugello region of Tuscany, and then they rose to become the top banking family as well. Um, Really interesting story. Please do read up about it if you don't know um, about it. They also entered politics, and they rose to the top, becoming basically de facto rulers of the city of Florence. Now, the greatest of the Medici was named Lorenzo the Magnificent and he had quite a big part to play in Lorenzo. Shy, shy and retiring rather yeah. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he he had quite a big part to play in the early years um of Savonarola's time in Florence. So politics at this time was really turbulent. There were other families who believed that the Medici were upstarts who didn't deserve to have the banking monopoly, nor deserved to be rulers in all but name. One such family was the Patsy, who would go on to head what became known as the Patsy Conspiracy, which is quite a famous story, actually. And it had the backing of Pope Sixtus IV, I think it was off the top of my head. And it all stemmed from jealousy. And Sixtus, who was annoyed that the Medici hadn't given him a loan to buy the town of Rimini. And he told the conspirators to do what they liked to get rid of Lorenzo, although they conveniently forgot the don't shed any blood rule that the Pope put into place, as they do, you know, during these conspiracies and that. It was agreed that both Medici brothers had to go and it was planned to take place at mass on Sunday the 28th of April 1478. As the host was raised, they would strike the brothers down, end Medici tyranny and take their place at the top. But it didn't go to plan. Of course it didn't. So whilst Lorenzo's younger brother was viciously murdered in the sprawling cathedral, Lorenzo survived the attack and began a brutal series of reparations. Each conspirator was quickly hunted down and executed. What would have struck Savonarola the most at this time was how Lorenzo hadn't even flinched when it came to executing the two clergy members who had attacked Lorenzo. Even when Sixtus excommunicated Lorenzo for those actions, he didn't seem to care. (laughs) And so, yeah, it must have struck a nerve with the young Dominican. After all, his colleagues had been hunted down like dogs by a man who was king in all but name. And it must have left a pretty sour taste in his mouth. He would have known about the Medici family before that, but I think this would have been his first big like smack to the face of the family and what was going on in Florence. So he's certainly not sh- showing himself to be sh- shy and retiring, is he? He's he's getting no. himself straight in there. He hadn't. He gave himself a nickname, didn't he? Yes, the hailstorm that will smash the heads of those who don't ke- take cover 
He wasn't shy in retiring, that's for sure, at least during his later years in Florence. But before he found his voice, he was actually very quiet and his heavy, heavy Ferrari's accent put people off coming to his sermons. There are stories of him preaching to a near empty church, the congregation made up of women and children who had no interest in being there whatsoever. Later, he would go on to describe his early sermons of being so rubbish that they could not move a hen. It took him years of practice, uh, being sent to other towns and cities to preach sermons, long hours of preparation to find something to preach about, for him to find his voice. And in Florence, when he arrived there, he saw corruption, vice, gambling, whoring and homosexuality, all things that he found completely abhorrent. He also found a ruling family that he believed acted like tyrants, linking to the last question there along with an incredibly corrupt papacy. So it gave him something to shout about. Uh, he filled churches for his sermons here, where he denounced all of the issues in the city and spoke with such passion and eloquence that people were able to look behind the accent and, you know, just see this guy who was shouting the truth, basically. There were those in Florence who already believed as he did, and his manner managed to turn people to his side who didn't believe as well. It filled him with the confidence that allowed him to call himself the hailstorm to state that a new Cyrus was coming to turn Florence into a city of God. The self-actualization certainly worked and he took Florence by storm for sure. Yes. I guess if you're speaking truth to power in a time when people don't do that, even if you've mm. got a funny accent, people are going to listen to you. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And it must have been quite something, you know, this little hook-nosed black cowled monk standing in a pulpit just screaming about the wrongs of the city and how corrupt the church was. It must have been something to watch, for sure. So we've got some others joining us now, and I'm going to butcher my first Italian name. <laughs> the Pagnani? So I think that's about right. Piagnoni? Something like that. We'll put it in a sing-song access and just power on through it. Piagnoni. <laughs> so who, who, who are they? And how, um, how do they influence this? It actually means the whalers, so we can, we can call them that. Oh, we'll call them the whalers. Um, yeah. Okay. So they were basically Savonarola's closest personal adherents and his super fans, if you will. They worked really closely with Savonarola to enforce his campaigns and his rules against gambling, blasphemy and illicit sex. Basically, in a nutshell, they were the fun police. That's the only thing you can say about them, fun police. <laughs> every story's got one of those hasn't it so let's, let's let's flip the coin here who do we have on the other side so on the other side we have the bg not the bgs the bg so these guys they were calling for the return of them and their name actually means the greys technically they didn't really support one side or the other uh, but they missed how life had been under the Medici and wanted to return to wearing nice clothes and having f you also then have the Arrabbiati uh, which means the enraged and these guys were very anti-Savonarola and they wanted rid of him by any means necessary. The stage is getting set here for an, an interesting showdown Lorenzo de Medici dies on us and that sort of creates a whole new sort of complication to things but it's specifically bad for Gilamo's opponents and not for him, which 
gives him a little bit more wiggle room, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you have to remember that Lorenzo was king in all but name. He controlled the government as members of his family had done for decades before him. And the moment he died, the floodgates opened and allowed supporters of Savonarola to take up positions of power in government. And this meant that laws could be changed. And so with Savonarola at the helm, a number of reforms took place that all but gave control back to the people of Florence. Under Savonarola, Medician political policies were gotten rid of. A grand council was set up to control the government. The calling of parliamenti or ringing a bell and gathering citizens in the main square to vote, in inverted commons. And that, that vote was always done in favour of the Medici. So that was gotten rid of. Other reforms included getting rid of the 20 electors, a group of men who had the power to elect officials and block those they didn't like from holding office. The six beans voting system was also gotten rid of. So with this voting system, a black bean meant yes, a white bean meant no, and a vote could only pass with a two-thirds majority, except the Signoria, the government, had the power to completely override this and wield unchecked power very much like a Roman emperor would have done. It meant that in certain situations, a person's life could literally be in the hands of an all-powerful government. And Savonarola thought, nah, this this is dictatorial. We're not going to put up with that. And he argued for the reform. So a new appeal process was brought in, which was a huge win for Savonarola and a painful loss for the Medicians. They'd lost everything with the death of Lorenzo and lost even more when Lorenzo's son, Piero, was was exiled. So all this is going on. Florence, key city in Italy, side of the banks, the the whole nine yards. And from Rome, we have the lovely Rodrigo Borgia watching very, very closely. He's the Pope, so Alexander yeah. the fourth, sixth, sixth, sixth. Alexander the sixth. What is he getting up to? Because he's keeping a very close tab on this. Oh yeah, he's you know sitting there, nice and happy in Rome, having just newly been elected, living the high life with his mistresses and his children, and that took Savonarola by the ears and gave him a shake a shake I would like to say because yeah you know corruption mistresses children you know popes aren't supposed to do that so Savonarola started shouting out against it and Rodrigo was basically like hold on a minute what's this guy doing and yeah you know he was an astute politician who in the past he'd managed to quell a revolt in Ancona he was wily he was confident and he knew how to wield power so it was no wonder that Savonarola from his pulpit in Florence would butt heads with him not wanting to give dear old Rodrigo a bit of wiggle room he wasn't the first pope to have mistresses and kings and things so no, just, just to be no. fair he, he's not an anomaly <laughs> in all this no definitely not <laughs> I mean, he was no worse, in my opinion, anyway, than any pope who came before or after him to to an extent. And there were there were worse out there for sure. He was pr- pretty much a saint compared to some of them. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at Blue dot com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. But those, those saints don't get TV shows. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> so we've got two, it says religious giants here, and it's, it's interesting because they're, they're they are very much the same, almost the same side of the same coin because they're, they're wielding mm. similar sorts of power just in ever so slightly different ways. So you've called it the duel of the religious giants. So mm-hmm. what's the, the time has come for them to finally butt heads good and proper, hasn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, think of it like a heavyweight boxing match, but instead of the winner getting a belt, um, all they get, well, I say all they get, they get to see their opponent excommunicated, kicked out of office, or at the very extreme end of the spectrum, dead. So on the one hand, you've got Alexander, the head of the Catholic Church, and God's chosen representative on earth, probably the most powerful man in the world at the time, who was technically beyond reproach. Um, and then on the other, you have a simple Dominican friar who had managed to oust the Medici and reform Florentine government from his pulpit, which is, you know, pretty something but more importantly he was denouncing Alexander from the pulpit um, and convincing his congregation that Alex was so corrupt he could not possibly run the church he used the Pope's transgressions against him crying out against his mistresses and children as we just mentioned there and he even sent letters to the rulers of other countries asking them to help him oust the Borgia including Henry VII of England, which I thought was really interesting, the link there between the two. But for all of his clever words, Savonarola completely underestimated just how clever Alexander was. And there, there was no way, really, that Savonarola could win when went up against Alexander the Sixth. But he tries. He tries. It's, <laughs> it's, it's the try that it gets interesting. Yeah. We've reached the bonfire of the vanities. And we're not talking about the Tom Wolfe book. We're talking about the OG Bonfire of the Vanities here. So what was it? Because it's been something that's been used and framed in so many different mm-hmm. ways. But what was the Bonfire of the Vanities? So, I mean, every art historian I've spoken to, if you mention that phrase, Bonfire of the Vanities, they will cringe because of what was consigned and lost to the flames so basically this bonfire Savonarola sent his army of of boys fanciuli from house to house to collect up vanities or items that offended god or was seen as evil and they they basically forced people to give them up as well so anything like makeup gowns wigs books by classical authors nude paintings um nude statues it's said that even Botticelli gave up some of his paintings as well, Ooh. which just hurts my heart because yeah. <laughs> I love Botticelli. And then 
in the Piazza della Signoria, a massive tiered pyramid was built, topped off by an image of the devil. And then the, the vanities were piled up all around. Just so we know exactly where all this stuff is going. Yeah. <laughs> and the higher a vanity was to the top, the more evil it was. So the Botticellis were on the top, weren't they? Oh, oh probably. <laughs> Which is such a shame. <laughs> Just makes me want to cry thinking of that. Now, a Venetian merchant actually offered 20,000 florins to the uh, signoria to save all of this stuff but he was refused and it all went up in flames anyway which again very sad um so Savonarola actually did this on the back of a, a very difficult time for Florence on the back of war and famine that had gone on between in like 1497 and he thought a bonfire at Carnivale would boost morale (laughs) <laughs> and it, it it kind of worked a little bit, but it couldn't last because, you know, people were still going hungry and they were growing angry with Savonarola, especially when he turned around and told them that the famine was their fault. That's never good. Yeah. So that that kind of ticked them off a bit. And yeah, yeah you, you, you don't you don't tell starving people that you're starving because it's you because that. It just annoys people. Really, <laughs> exactly. Is it any wonder that things started to go downhill from there? Jeez. So the tables get turned now. So he's he's they they've had their bonfire. Yes. They've had their they've had their fun. We've we've mm-hmm. lost more great works to the flames. What happens now? So his star was waning, and his opponents they started to try and block him from preaching. One protest before his Ascension Day sermon uh, saw the corpse of a donkey nailed to the pulpit and excrement smeared all over the walls. Yep. The people of Florence, you know, they were growing tired and the Pope was really losing his patience. There were even rumours that the Medici were trying to come back as well because, you know, Savonarola, they were bored of you know, the fun police. Now, Alexander then formally excommunicated Savonarola and the brief was read out on the 18th of June 1497 in the city's biggest churches so Santa Croce places like that of course guess what he did he ignored it (laughs) and he carried on preaching anyway which was a big mistake then Alexander offered him a way out go to Rome and seek forgiveness on his knees directly and he refused big mistake number two Things got more worrying for Savonarola when Bernardo de Neri, uh, de Nero, sorry, was elected as Gonfalonia of the Signoria, so basically the top guy in the government. Now, this guy, this guy Bernardo, was a Medician through and through. More letters and briefs were, were sent to, to Florence, ordering Savonarola to stop preaching. And the Signoria, despite having this new guy at the top, they they didn't really know what to do with, with dear old Savonarola. His position might have been growing weaker, but he was still an integral part of the fabric of, of the city at the time. It was growing weaker by the minute, though, and literally the final act was about to begin. He was about to completely bugger up his chances of turning anything around and it would all go horribly wrong. I'm tempted to say if you want to find out what happens next, people should buy your book. Oh, they should. Do it's very good to... if I do say so myself. Uh, yeah, which is why we're which is why we're here. Because 
the next bit is really, is one of those great fall from grace of someone who thought popular yeah. power was going to keep him keep him safe and popular power is nothing when you're up against the pope yeah yeah exactly i mean it just all went horribly 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 wrong so next up sees the trial by fire which is quite you know quite another famous incident in in Savonarola's life previously he'd been challenged to this ordeal or trial by fire by a monk called Francesco de Puglia but it was all brushed under the rug and until it sort of re-emerged later down the line and Puglia he reignites it. He's like, I want to go through this trial by fire with you. I'm going to prove you're a fraud, blah, blah, blah. And Savonarola initially ignores it until Domenico de Pesha, a supporter of Savonarola's and a fellow Dominican, says that he will take Savonarola's place so he doesn't have to go through the fire himself. But Puglia only wanted to face Savonarola and refused, saying that he had no issue with Pesha, only with Girolamo. But by this point, the Signoria had gotten involved because it was the perfect thing they thought to show him and bring him down. We need to say, when we mean trial by fire, we don't mean a difficult trial. We literally mean a trial by fire. They're going to walk through fire. Yeah, yeah. So it was agreed that this this trial by fire would go ahead because it was the perfect way to, to start getting rid of him. You know, they knew that he couldn't, prove himself to be oblivious to the flames and with all these miracles and stuff it was it was impossible now a massive stage was built in the palazzo della signoria lined with brushwood um, which was covered in oil and the passage was really quite thin and narrow so that you know if you try to pass each other you're gonna get burnt either way no there's not going to be a winner from it now the Franciscans, so the other side, they arrived first, followed by the Dominicans. Pesha wore a red cloak, the symbol of martyrdom, um, and Savonarola carried the host. But the Franciscans uh, argued ab- against this, saying that the cloak could be bewitched and the robes that he wore beneath them could be too. And the arguments, they, they got so bad that representatives from both sides, they were called into the, the palazzo and just to try and work out what was going to go on. But they were in there so long that a rainstorm just happened, you know, put out the flames and the crowd absolutely lost it. You know, they'd been there for hours and hours. There were people on like crowded in the palazzo itself on the, on the roofs of the houses surrounding it. And the Dominicans, they ran back to San Marco, which was where they lived. And it's a very nice place if you haven't been there make sure you go. And they were besieged. You know, people rushed at the place. They tried to burn down the gates and it was just a big mess. But they fought back, completely forgetting that they were supposed to be peaceful. And one friar even fired an arquebus from the pulpit, which I thought was quite something go when I read it. Go home, really. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like they had apparently secret stashes of weapons like hidden all around the place. And I'm like, what? (laughs) What's going on here? It's crazy. So, yeah, Savonarola gives himself up because he he knows that it can't carry on. He doesn't want to risk the lives of his friars under under his care. And he's formally arrested along with two of his supporters, Domenico de Pesha, who we've 
met in the trial by fire and another gentleman by the name of Silvestro Marufi, who was another supporter um, who had tried to escape San Marco and got caught going out the back gate. So it's not a good end, really? No, not at all. And it gets worse. We're sort of dragging everybody down now. So, okay, let's do this. Let's spoil the end of the book. What becomes of him? Oh, spoilers. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So when he is arrested, um, he's taken up to a tiny little cell. I don't know if anyone has seen pictures or been to the Palazzo, the Palazzo Vecchio these days, as it's known. But it's got a tower right in the middle. And right at the top of there is a tiny little cell known as the Albicatino or Little Inn. And it had held other famous inmates previously, including Cosimo de' Medici, Lorenzo's father. And it is literally tiny. You can go in it these days and just sit there, look out the window, and you've barely got room to swing a cat, let alone do anything, you know. Um, But sitting in there was quite something, I must admit. Just sitting in there, having a quiet few minutes, like, damn, this is where he spent the last few days of his life. tears crying Uh, (laughs) because I'm such a nerd then he's taken to the Bargello which is like the the main prison area first of all he's questioned and threatened with the torture but the threats didn't work so they tortured him by the strapado so they strapped his hands behind his back and then hoisted him in the air and then dropped him ow The Signoria, they should have waited for permission to come from Rome before they even started the torture, but they didn't. So there was technically no legal standing at that point for what they were doing, but they didn't care. They just just did it anyway. They wanted a confession out of the guy and they, they kept going. Now, the, the, the guys questioning him, they weren't happy with what he was telling them. They wanted him to admit that he was a fraud. And he didn't because obviously, you know, he thought that he wasn't. Uh, He believed wholeheartedly in the message he was spreading, that he had the word of God and and all that jazz. So eventually a delegation was called in from Rome, which included a gentleman, a cardinal by the name of Francesco Romolino, who was a friend of Cesare Borgia, Alexander VI's son. And he was told to work with Francesco de Ser Barone or he was also known as uh, Caccione, or yeah, Caccione. I think that's how you pronounce it, to extract a confession. And the strapado kept being used over and over and over again because it was just so painful, that, but it wouldn't kill him. So it would just force him into, you know, telling these guys what they wanted to hear. So, yeah, he, he said what they wanted to hear and he signed a confession and the others were tortured as well at the same time, again, from, with the strapado. And they were all found guilty. On the 22nd of May, 1498, they were condemned as heretics and schismatics. And that very evening, the scaffold was built again in the palazzo in front of the, the Palazzo della Signoria. And from where Savonarola was kept in his cell, he probably would have been able to hear it being built. Because obviously it was, you know, just down below him. Kind of Anne Boleyn vibes there because she's going off the subject a bit because she 
apparently could see hers being built as well. But that's a, another story. So he spent his last evening with a member of the Compagnia de Neri. They were a brotherhood whose job it was to look after the condemned in their final hours. And that night he slept with his lap, with his head in the lap of the, uh, the guy who was there looking after him. And on the morning of the execution, he was allowed to give one last mass. Now, the execution took, took place that next morning. So he was given given one last mass to the other two, said their goodbyes. Uh, and then they were led out to the scaffold where all three were degraded. They were put in front of three different sort of like teams of people from the church the word escapes me for now they they stripped them of their place in the church they cut a bit out of their tonsure to mark that they were no longer friars and they were also stripped of their robes and because by doing that it meant that they could be executed like common criminals in Florence instead of being hoisted off to Rome and dealt with there and then they were executed. First up went Marufi, and he was made to suffer intentionally by the uh, executioner. The noose was too short, and he was allowed to hang there and choke to death, which is just horrible. Next up, Domenico de Pesha went up there, but he was he was quite happy. Up he went, jumped off practically, all of his own accord. And then it was Savonarola's turn. He went silently, but as he was hanged, the executioner jerked his body around just to, you know, show show that this guy wasn't special. He was dead now. And then a fire was lit by a member of the crowd. Um, someone burst through and grabbed like the torch and shouted, now I can burn the man who wanted to burn me, which points to this member of the public being a homosexual because Savonarola brought in well it had been a rule uh, a law anyway but he made it more of one if that makes sense and he wanted to you know burn people who were guilty of of homosexuality so perfect for this guy to get his revenge I can burn the man who wanted to burn me that's quite something now when the flames were lit obviously there's like updrafts and all that he was hanging there burning away and the flames caught his arm and lifted it up and it looked like he was preaching and blessing the crowd from from where he was hanging and, and burning which caused a little bit of panic as you can imagine thinking oh god it's a final miracle maybe we were wrong but it was too late it was done and dusted now, and the Signoria, they didn't want any relics of these these guys, Savonarola and his his supporters, to be retrieved from from the flames. So the bodies were were dropped into the inferno and left to burn. And then the ashes, as soon as it had all cooled down, they were dumped into the River Arno. It's a way to go, isn't it? Yeah, not a nice way to go yeah. at all. Yeah, a lot of our podcast ends with ends with mid, mid, medieval or early modern hangings, burnings, and things like that. It never gets easier to listen to. No, but I what, hated what, writing about it. <laughs> no, yeah, you, you, we 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 were talking about Joan of Arc recently, and 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 that that's just just as bad. The idea of mm. you know, being burnt. Oh, just, but let's not. Let's move on. Yeah, let's talk. Let's yeah. <laughs> Read the book. There's more burning and hanging in, in the book. Um, <laughs> so what what is Gilarmo's legacy, do you think? We're, we're talking about him now. He 
popped up in TV shows. He's he's mentioned. Yeah. You know, he's in the Prince. He stamped his mark that has that has endured. So, what what do you think mm-hmm. that legacy is? Oh well, he obviously, like you say, he stamped his mark on history. He was a very early reformer of the church and he influenced people like Martin Luther um, and and John Calvin. Now he's actually on Martin Luther's tomb. There's a carving of him on Luther's tomb, which I thought was quite nice. Yeah. So, you know, he, without Savonarola, we wouldn't have had the Protestant Reformation. Basically, that's the way I like to see it. He's in modern media. He's in The Borgias. He's in Borgia Faith and Fear, which is the better TV show. Everyone should watch it. (laughs) Much better. And he's in video games as well. So, you know, the, the only problem that I see is that people still want to vilify him, like, hugely. I mean, he did some really bad stuff, of course, at least from a modern day standpoint. But he believed he was doing the right thing. For Florence, he wanted to make it better. But in these TV shows, he and, and video games, he's seen as and shown as a bit of a fanatic, which I can understand, you know, because he was fanatical in his ways of going about things and ending all the fun that was had, ending Carnivale, ending going out whoring, drinking, gambling, all of that side of things. Um, and in in the shows as well, he's he's just shown as not very nice. But I like to think that he probably, yeah, he might have had some some bad ways of going about things, but who doesn't, you know, at the end of the day? And as well as that, he's commemorated every year in Florence on the anniversary of his death. There's a big service done. No, 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 no. no. There's a plaque on the grounds um, outside the Palazzo Vecchio as it's known now, um, which marks the exact spot where it happened. And they have a ceremony there every year. And then they walk down to the the Ponte Vecchio and they pour rose petals into the water, you know, symbolises the ashes of, mm. of the condemned men. And they do that every year without fail. Flowers are laid down on the plaque. And he's not seen in Florence, really, I don't think, as a bad guy. You know, yeah, he did bad things, but he's part of their history and they they like to to show that and teach people about what he did, what was wrong about it, whether he was right or not, you know, all that side of it. And as well, he's also in Ferrara. He's pretty much hero worshipped I want to say because he was born there he's got his own statue in the the courtyard in front of the castle which is something else to behold it's absolutely amazing he's got restaurants there named after him they want to remember this guy who became so famous and dealt with the biggest names in in Christendom and they do it marvelously they really do I've just Googled that statue in Ferrara. That is quite something, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Yeah. It's all hands and point. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I remember we sat in a restaurant literally right by there. It was called the Savonarola or something like that. Uh, And you could see him out the corner of your eye, just there with his arms raised and, 
and on the glasses they had little savonarolas and it was adorable yes, the guy who was kind of against fun is now yeah. Fun. <laughs> yeah it's funny how history works isn't it sam this is this has been utterly fascinating thank you so much for, for spending the time with us let's, let's give the book a plug what's it called it is called the pope's greatest adversary Girolamo savonarola and it's published by pen and sword books and we have it on our very own bookshop and if you want oh. a copy the link in our description will take you directly to it so there we go it it, it all ties up nicely fab yeah buy it enjoy it i had fun so, writing it <laughs> it sounds like you did because that's that's been that's been really good fun I, I suppose you should ask did you ever get back to the english civil war not really <laughs> no. <laughs> which is a shame because i do love it but that's a, a different story for a different day and that yes. goes into battlefield archaeology and and all that jazz but i've probably forgotten most of it by now well thank you for not forgetting what we've spoken about tonight and Gilarmo because that was wonderful and if you've only seen him in Assassin's Creed 2 the, the added on bits at the end by the book because there's a lot more to it to, than that and of course a lot more to it than we've spoken about now so oh yeah Sam thank you so much you're more than welcome when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.